Hello everyone and welcome to Radio YNP. I'm your host Carter Wickham here for the Carter Wickham Show and today we are joined by a special guest, Professor Colin Harvey from Queen's University, Belfast. So thanks for listening and let's get right into it. My first question is, if I am a middle class father, mm-hmm. say family of three, good job, why am I going to support a board of war United Ireland if that could risk getting rid of my health care, getting rid of my job? Well, I think we need to just t- take a few steps back and contextualize the discussion at the moment. I think that obviously there's, there's, a, there's a growing conversation out there about the prospects for constitutional change on the island. I think that's a result of Brexit in particular. Obviously, after Brexit, this, this, this region is essentially outside of the European Union. And uh, the border on the island of Ireland becomes an external border of the European Union as well. So I think many people at the moment are asking questions around really future well-being. You know, where is this region best placed in the context of those Brexit conversations? You know, it, it increasingly looks as if Britain may be wandering into the wilderness, really, in terms of some of the the outworkings of what is essentially, I think, English nationalism. So I think, first of all, people are asking the questions about future, future well-being. And I think, you know, I, I wonder in that context whether Ireland just begins to look like the more attractive option for many people living in, in the north. Uh, but, but you're right, you know, in a sense that there needs to be a conversation about, you know, the, the shape of that constitutional future planning preparation, you know, that, that addresses some of the harder questions that, that, that really deals with some of the myths as well around the debate too. So I think for the person pondering all this right now, I think Brexit raises very profound questions about where people are better off and that that will continue. So I think, you know, we need to manage that. We need to engage with that responsibly and we need to answer some of those questions. Do you see, is there a discussion at the moment Mm -hmm. happening across community about abortable? I think I would almost rephrase the the question right in terms of because I think that the language of a border poll is rather crude language okay. you know, essentially we're not just talking about the border we're talking about how we share this island how we share these islands in the future we're talking about constitutional change and questions around constitutional change so it's clear to anybody you know in a sense the fact that we're talking about it yeah. today the fact that almost every commentator on the island of Ireland has felt the need to address it the fact that that People from the unionist community have spoken out around this issue as well. We've seen interventions from civic unionism. We've seen, for example, Peter Robinson raise it last year. Uh, and not, it seems to be not a day goes by uh, where there isn't a conversation happening around it. So I think the conversation is happening, but I suppose some of the big questions now are about where this goes next. Well, where do you yeah. think goes next then? I guess we would follow it. Well, I think at the moment there's a sense in which and you'll have you've you've seen some of the events we've been at some of the events together you know yeah. in a sense we've seen people talk about planning and preparation for this we need to manage the conversation we need to have a responsible discussion but there's a habit people then just get up leave the room and nobody does anything yeah. i think we need to set out and discuss how this has taken forward myself i've made suggestions around the british irish intergovernmental conference about providing a, a British-Irish framework for this, really, because I don't, I don't think anybody here wants, you know, the Secretary of State to wake up 
and decide to hold a border poll next Thursday. You know, I think yeah. that would be that would be disastrous. Really, I think it needs to be thought through. It needs to be discussed. A framework needs to be put in place. I think that needs to be done by the British Irish government. Uh, but I do think the Irish government at the moment has a particular responsibility around. Uh, setting up some kind of institutional framework for this. Obviously, Brexit is dominating public life at the moment, but I think that there is clearly room for some kind of forum assembly convention modelled along the lines of the assemblies or conventions that have already been held in the South to probe this question, to begin to think about options and ways forward. I myself, you know, in a sense, have named a date, (laughs) 22nd of May 2023, which is 25 years on from the vote on the Good Friday Agreement, um, just to really focus minds around the, c- the conversation. I think ultimately, myself speaking very personally, people here have a right to be given that choice, particularly around Brexit, you know, because I think one of the, the bad and neglected issues at the moment is there is a mechanism in the Good Friday Agreement for giving people what is essentially a choice about rejoining the European Union. I think increasingly will be framed in those terms. Are we prepared to... Uh, are we prepared for border poll? Yep. <coughs> I think it's the ultimate test of the Good Friday Agreement and whether the Good Friday Agreement is embedded in this society. Obviously, things are very, very difficult at the moment. There's no, no government. But you know, I think there's work to be done in terms of planning and preparation. I don't think anybody in the conversation, and this is one of the, you know, dealing with some of the myths, I think I don't get a sense anybody in the conversation is asking for one of this, this to happen next week. Yeah. I think, uh, and nobody who cares about the island of Ireland wants it to happen in an unprepared, chaotic, symbolic way. Uh, there needs to be planning and preparation, but it needs to be done within a defined time frame. Like You'll know that some of the interventions in this debate are essentially about putting it off forever so it never happens. So we have to get the balance right between calling for planning and preparation and getting everything aligned in terms of having these votes uh, and those who really don't want to face this at all. Um, so let's not rush into this immediately, but let's also not defer it indefinitely into the future. I think we need to put a proper framework around it, and I think that begins to look like putting a date around it as well. Does does the planning pre- <coughs> does the planning and preparation happen <coughs> before or after affordable? If is there a way that we are able to actually plan for vertical or <coughs> or do we? say the North votes yes and say that the South votes yeah. yes, yeah. then is that where the real planning begins? Or can we do it before? I think there, you know, you have to separate a number of things out in this discussion. Procedurally, there needs to be planning and preparation because we need to know, uh, for example, in, here in this region, uh, who will be able to vote in this thing. Yeah. So we need the procedural questions. We need also to know what the question's going to be. And there are difference, procedural differences north and south that will need to be mapped out. So there are a number of questions around eligibility to vote, about the process and all that, particularly here, that will need to be resolved and, and sorted out. Then there are the substantive questions. And I suppose that you know it's becoming a cliche of the whole debate that people say we don't want to repeat the Brexit mess. But that so... People voting actually have a clear sense of what they're voting for. So those who are proposing the reunification of the island have a clear proposition. But equally, and I think a neglected issue at the moment is around unionism. You know, for example, what's the proposition from unionism, loyalism to people in this region about remaining in the UK? So I think there's both a procedural issue around planning and preparation and substantive so that people, in a sense, know 
what uh, they're actually voting for. And I think that's where some of the most interesting, intriguing debates are happening because you've already seen, uh, you know, Leo Varadkar's talked about this idea of, you know, a new constitution, a new state. Uh, And there's a bit of a tension there, I think, between a sort of continuity approach and a more transformative approach to that conversation. I think that will happen the other way as well around unionism. You know, what's the offer from unionism? Will that be more of the same or will that be a more transformative conversation about what the North might look like if people decide to stay in the UK? I've made the argument that whatever way that maps out, uh, that will be a better and healthier place for having the conversation. Like my sense on the island is that you know what what's happened on this island is exercise in, in avoidance essentially of finding ways of not talking to each other by having a focused discussion around referendums on the island of Ireland it will force all sides out of their complacency because they will have to engage they'll have to make conversations they'll have to put you know flesh around the bones of what they're proposing uh, and make propositions to people and people beyond their own constituencies as well is there a chance of us do we need a government mm-hmm. in Stormont in order to have a border Do you think that could be an issue as to why one's not being called? Well I think the 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 referendums come out of the Good Friday Agreement and anybody who cares about the Good Friday Agreement wants to see its entire institutional architecture operating and working. So I think it would be helpful to have all the institutions of the GFA, including here, Executive Assembly, North South Ministerial Council, and East, all the institutions, all working well together, would would be helpful. Um, I don't think it's necessarily essential that they are there in order to have these things. But I think if if we think about the border poll debate, if you like, the, the question about sharing the island flows out of the Good Friday Agreement. And if we respect and care for the Good Friday Agreement, then we want to see, in a sense, all the institution, the values of the Good Friday Agreement up and running and working well together uh, so that we can plan and manage this in a sensible way. So, For those who may yeah. not be, may not know, could yeah. you explain yeah. the mechanism of how we trigger a border? Yeah, and it's a great question because it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's in the Good Friday Agreement, and it gives the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland quite considerable discretion. Um, so Secretary of State has discretion to call this essentially at any time, but that then develops into an obligation where it's reasonably likely that the majority of people would vote for United Ireland. And uh, the rationale for that is uh, is if there's really solid evidence that um, the majority of people here want to leave the UK, then in a sense the arrangements are sort of become, they look de facto illegitimate. So Secretary of State has a lot of discretion. That's why in some of the proposals I've been making, I've been, you know, advancing a bit of caution around that and scepticism because essentially, you know, it's inconceivable really that this would just be left to the current British government to trigger this. I think it needs to be managed in a much more sensible, inclusive way. So. Well, I think a big question yeah. would be, why would a yeah. British Secretary of State want to trigger a poll which would cause a part of the UK to leave? So, I think there's, there's a sense in which it reflects the constitutional compromise in, in the agreement. Uh, and you're right, there's, there's also a sense that the agreement itself is not really very well understood. The, the constitutional status of this place is supposed to be based only on consent. Yeah. You know, there's a sort of negotiated constitutional compromise. 
Uh, and you're right, you know, the, I suppose the worry a lot of people have is that, that it might prove very, very difficult to get a British Secretary of State ever to, to call one of these things, to give people the choice. And that's why I think the Irish government has a role in that by the various existing institutions. You know, Irish government has to become, in a sense, a persuader for this happening. What's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Does the Irish government yeah. have a say in yeah. if a border poll is held or not? Again, at the, at the moment, in terms of the arrangements in the agreement, um, triggering this is very much linked to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. But the vote itself, you know, is a vote for the people of the island of Ireland. So yeah, you're right in a sense. The sort of the triggering mechanism r is rather intriguingly linked to the current yeah. British government. Um, I think we all know in a practical sense that it's inconceivable that any British government would do this without uh, liaising with and talking to the Irish government. And that's why I think uh, while you can see it's possible, you know, governments change in London, you know, the current government might not be there forever. You might have a government in London or a coalition, for example, in London that is much more open to the idea of giving people here a say yeah. about their future. Um, but you know, on the other hand, you could have a government that even when, for example, opinion polls are looking like people might go that way, might hold out against us. That's why I think we need to look to the Irish government, I think, to become, a, you know, in a sense, a persuader for giving people a choice yeah. in relation to this issue. But again, you are right. The Good Friday Agreement rather intriguingly yeah. gives, you know, a British Secretary of State an awful lot of power over triggering this process here, yeah. you know, in the north. It's interesting yeah. at the moment because the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, um, yeah. sort of refuses to allow Scotland to yeah. have a poll. So it seems quite unlikely that mm. we would be allowed, but as you said, the governments could change. Why 2023? Mm. Why did you pick that date as a time we'd have that poll? I, I was getting rather, like a lot of people who've been in rooms in the last few years, and people will stand up and they'll say, quite robust things about planning and preparation and all that uh, and then have a habit of walking out of the room and doing absolutely nothing so I was really quite keen to focus minds on a date that would it be appropriate first of all because it was that period in 1998 when the people of the Ireland of Ireland got to sp speak you know so in a sense 25 years on from that but really just to focus minds around a date that's you know just you know, a few years ahead, but enough ahead for there to be a process of planning and preparation. Yeah. So uh, really to, to, to focus minds, the symbolism of that day, 25 years on, but really a sense of frustration in myself that, that, that two things really look, I'd be very, very, you know, from a personal perspective, uh, I think people here around the Brexit issue need to be given a choice about their future in the European Union. And there's a mechanism in the Good Friday Agreement to give people here the option of rejoining the EU. Yeah. That mechanism becomes a way back to the European Union. So in, in a sense, there's an opportunity to reframe that. So as a, as a matter of principle, I think people here need to be given that choice. But the naming of the date really was to try and focus minds, a sense of frustration that really there was a lot of hot air and talk about this, but not a lot of action happening. And really, I wanted to, to, to get people focused on getting ready and getting prepared. I think that's happening now. I think this has now gained a momentum, an organic momentum that can't be put back. 
you know, I think there's a growing civic movement, particularly coming out of the north on this island for constitutional change for the discussion. And I think that's going to grow and that's going to continue. All right. An article that you wrote for mm. Sluggo Rotul, um, I'm just going to take a line from it. Yeah. You said unity is arguably in the strategic interest yeah. of the Irish state in the post-Brexit world. Yeah. Why, why would an Irish government want unity? Well, I think there's obviously one thing to, to keep in mind in relation to any Irish government. There's a constitutional imperative, if you like, in the Irish constitution in terms of uniting the people and territory of this island. So there's a, there's a constitutional dimension for any Irish government in taking this forward. But I think Brexit changes the context radically. I think in a post-Brexit environment, there is a real risk looking at what the British Brexiteers are talking about that the UK evolves into some kind of regulatory Wild West. And yeah. I think for Ireland and for the European Union, there are dangers in the north of the island becoming this sort of regulatory free-for-all, a space where uh, British government UK tries to undercut uh, the European Union, where the border becomes a hardened border on the island of Ireland, where I think over the longer term, Ireland and the European Union arguably has a vested interest, a strategic interest, in uh, you know using the mechanism that would make that border go away yep. in the longer term as a way of aligning the island of Ireland permanently. Now, for the life of me, I, don't under I do understand why people react to that, but I think that... You know, w we can't, in a sense, not say that out loud. It seems that to be, you know, such a bloody obvious point yeah. to make that there's a mechanism in the agreement, there's a way to align things on the island of Ireland, and I think it's in the interests of Irish government and the EU to promote that conversation on the island in the years ahead. You know? Thank you for that. Yep. So, a team you led, Brexit Law and I, mm. uh, did a study about mm. human rights and equality yep. protections uh, in Northern Ireland, and you talk about how Brexit has a potential of threatening not only the peace process but mm. weakening human rights. If we do go to a no-deal scenario, mm. sorry, is it just a no-deal scenario which will affect that or is it any Brexit scenario? I think we have to see, again, to, to step back a bit and think about the wider context. But I think br br Brexit is really part of a bigger agenda of the, the current British government which I think is ultimately about diminishing protections in terms of rights and equality over the longer term. So, you know, there's the obvious problems about leaving the European Union. The European Union has been very, very important in areas such as equality, anti-discrimination law, for example, and also in, in human rights terms. It's been very, very useful in terms of enforcing those things as well. But bear in mind, the current government in London, this is only the start, right? So th they're actually talking about after they get Brexit out of the way, whenever that happens, uh, they're going to repeal and replace the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights. I think they've made no secret about their antipathy to a sort of rights and equality agenda. I think many of them see a sort of small state deregulated uh, future Britain stroke UK. Yeah. And I think I would the impact on this region would be catastrophic over the longer term around that. So Brexit is part of a bigger agenda. I think that it is actually hostile to the language, the practice of human rights and equality in this society. And remember, a society where people were promised so much in those areas after the Good Friday Agreement and its vision of the sort of society they want to create. So Brexit 
you know, disastrous, but it's part of a bigger agenda um, that should be worrying to everyone in this society about the future. So a lot of people sort of see the EU on a very economic terms, mm. in terms of being a trading block for the world. What sort of, how does the EU affect us in terms of, say, human rights for Northern Ireland? Well, the number of things I would say there. One thing I would do want to make clear, a lot of work that I've done over the years has been in the area of refugee protection, the rights of migrants and asylum seekers. And very often I find myself in those conversations being critical of the European Union. So, so nobody in this conversation is a sort of, you know, starry-eyed, uh, you know, looking through the EU with roost. The, the EU has its flaws and problems. The EU often doesn't live up to its own foundational values in terms of human rights and equality. But I think the European Union has been an important peace project. It has supported a whole peace-building process here. It has often funded things that, that wouldn't have attracted funding from other bodies, for example. It's been courageous in how it's approached the peace process here. It does have, and it's been important in relation, I think, to equality and anti-discrimination law, uh, related areas around employment, social protections, been very, very important in providing a backdrop. It's not the only thing and underpinning all that, but it's also got important enforcement mechanisms as well. And I think people are just really, really nervous about losing, particularly here where we have relied on, you know, those international or regional structures uh, to try and protect us, in a sense, beyond this, this region and society, of that all falling away. Um, and nervousness around where that might take us in a region that you know you know yourself you know it's the anxiety here about the rights and equality crisis that we're going backwards that we're falling behind you know yeah. these islands generally the sort of regional picture around Europe very very concerning so you know losing the EU while not overplaying you know the EU's role but we shouldn't underestimate the EU's role in these areas as well. So. Thank you. So I wanted to get your opinion. Um, recently, the yeah. Speaker of the House of Representatives yeah. in America, Nancy yeah. Pelosi, has said that America will defend the Good Friday Agreement if it, if current British government tries to alter it anyway. Mm. What would your thoughts be on that? Again, it's a, it's a great question and really very welcome intervention, I think, from Nancy Pelosi and others really in the U.S. Congress to, to really underline to the Brexit here is that their sort of dream of a trade deal with the US is going to encounter problems because, you know, one of the remarkable things about the Brexit conversation in this society, it's been remarkable to me, you know, having been out in Brussels and seeing the number of people who've been out in Brussels, is the sense in which the regional, the European and international solidarity for the peace process here and for the Good Friday Agreement has been absolutely remarkable. I think the British government has massively underestimated the, the level of that solidarity that is out there, and it's really beginning to show itself now. But I suppose one of the things for the US Congress is pushing that a bit further, you yeah. know, and, and what concrete action they will take in the time ahead to under, under, you know, underline, underpin those very, very welcome words about a free trade. But, but I think, you know, whether the, the British government, whether the Brexiteers really anticipated the level of solidarity for this place, I'm not sure. Why know. do you think that level of solidarity is, is there? Because it's, it's quite a big thing to have the Speaker of the House yeah. to say, we're going to defend you at any cost. But why do you think they have that vested yeah. interest? I think they have a vested interest because the peace process here is a transnational, international project. You know, that a number of actors internationally, well, it's in the US, European Union, elsewhere, 
have, an, have a vested interest in protecting the peace because yeah. they were often key participants in encouraging the peace process to go forward and also to sort of protect it and underpin it. So, you know, it underlines again that, you know, while I think peace here was built by communities themselves, it was often supported and underpinned by uh, international and European solidarity. And that's been brought out very, very forcefully now. You know, in some senses, you know, let's be quite open about it. You've had international actors, you've had the US Congress, you've had the European Union, often showing more concern for this place than the British government, and certainly at times more knowledge of this place than members of the British government. I think what was quite interesting is a couple weeks ago we had Naomi Long on, and she brought up a point saying that she found that Westminster, mm-hmm. sorry, that uh, Brussels, the MEPs in Brussels had more understanding than the MPs mm-hmm. in Westminster, yeah. us, which to a lot of people is quite, you know, yeah. sort of shocking to hear. I think she's she's right. You know, it's yeah. been clear to me in any engagements I've I've had that, that there's been a real attempt to to understand the detail. Here, we've been out, we've met the task force as part of our project, and that was transparently obvious. They put an enormous amount of work understanding this place. Um, and you do go to London, and again, without in any way being condescending in that context, you know, s- certain basic principles of the Good Friday Agreement are not widely understood. And I think 21 years on from 98, that's really quite remarkable. Just sort of on that, with certain aspects of the Good Friday Agreement not being understood. Mm-hmm. Are they widely understood here? Like, would because I, I I think that would be a good question. In f- terms of, does the average person really understand what the Good Friday Agreement set out, especially those maybe born afterwards? I think that is a a, a great question at the moment because, uh, and I would expand that out to the island of Ireland as as yeah. a as a whole, really, in terms of the current discussion because, um. You know, some of the core constitutional principles embedded in the Good Friday Agreement don't seem to be well understood. Like we've seen the discussion around rigorous impartiality in terms of with the current British government. But even trying to have this discussion around Irish reunification, and sometimes the reaction to that can be very, very hostile. Like I found that myself, you know. I've I've sat in you know many many seminars at Queen's talking about the constitutional future of the UK, but you know when you try to talk about this issue of Irish reunification, you can get a very very hostile response. That's a major major problem that we need to confront in this society, because it shows and demonstrates to me that concepts like parity of esteem, mutual respect, respect for you know the equality of different constitutional aspirations is not well understood and is not being respected at all in this society. At at the moment, people should be perfectly entitled and absolutely free to talk about an alternative constitutional vision for this region but there's still a problem in doing that I think here. And in what ways is it not being respected? The obvious one, although it seems to have reduced a bit, initially, certainly when I, you know, have been raising this stuff out loud around Brexit, sometimes you'll, and you'll have have heard this, people immediately react defensively, they accuse you of being divisive or provocative or dangerous or whatever, and I I, I just find that staggering, and I think we can't really accept that, because if constitutional aspirations for the future, whether in the UK or United Ireland, are equally legitimate, then uh, people are 
are, they don't need anybody's permission. They shouldn't apologise for talking about it. But they also don't need anybody's permission and there should be no apologies for doing the hard planning, preparatory work in universities and elsewhere as well. But I think you're aware that sometimes the reaction to that can be really quite disturbing here. And that you're right, you know, the sense in which I don't think the Good Friday Agreement, the constitutional compromise at the heart of it is understood very well at all. And how do we make it, how do we make it sort of more understood for people, especially sort of people my age? Yep. You know, we, I guess for me, it's finding a way to make young people sort of want to know about it which I think is a challenge in itself. So how do we sort of overcome that? Well, obviously doing things like this, in a sense, having these, these conversations, um, encouraging people to talk about it. But I think one of the things that I've been involved in a group called the Constitutional Conversations Group, and, and we're having an event in Derry this week, and we're trying to encourage people to cascade these discussions out into schools, workplaces, out into wider society, to encourage people to, to, to talk about different visions of the constitutional future. Now, I am very conscious as an academic that some of that can, can seem intensely boring, you know, but, but your earlier question about, you know, where do you want to live? You know, yeah. what's the vision for the future? What sort of society do you want to be in? Do you want to travel elsewhere in the world and, and hide in the corner and, and be embarrassed about mentioning where you're from? Or do you want to be prouder of the place that you're from? Do you want to speak about it in terms that, that look like other European contexts as well? I think encouraging people to have the conversation. I think with children and young people at the moment, it's also, you know, for people like myself, it's about listening. You know, listening, taking on board arguments about the future. And like what, what we're picking up in the research we did is that, you know, it's young people who are, who are having those conversations about yeah. the sort of society that, that, that they want to see, you know, around the protection of the environment, the protection of rights and equality, you know, a sort of inclusive and welcoming vision for the future as well. So, But it's about engaging, talking, listening. I do think schools have a big role to play in this, and it's where... I am rather disturbed about the reaction to raising this being don't raise it or right. shut up or go away. Because when you I say schools, do you mean yeah. university or would you mean even lower than that, such as think, grammar, secondary? No, across the board, I think we need to be taking these conversations out there into wider society at all levels, including schools, that we don't, nobody's embarrassed or afraid to talk out loud about what is actually in the Good Friday Agreement about where people want to be in the time ahead and having that conversation, uh, whatever way it turns turns out. I don't think it's acceptable at the moment, for example. Uh, and you sometimes get this sense when you raise it that people will talk about, well, there might be a violent response to that. Like yeah. If the Good Friday Agreement means anything at all, it means we have to be able to talk about alternative constitutional futures without the threat of violence making us afraid or telling us that we can't talk about this stuff out loud. We have to be able to keep... So talking about it, doing things like this, yeah. engaging people about where they want to be in the future is what we, we need to be doing, you know, and listening as well. Like, and the one thing, is, in a sense, about listening is, look, I don't want... I, I spent my entire life working for human rights and equality and yeah. social justice. I don't want any New Ireland to be a rep replication of the sort of inequalities that we have now, yeah. the sort of rights deficits that we have now. I want it to be a better society for everyone on the island. So, Thank you. So yeah. moving on to another topic, um, something I found quite interesting is sort of in terms of academics and professors, mm -hmm. sort of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Do you find, because this has been a very hot question in America, 
a lot of professors maybe not be able to say certain things in terms of the potential of getting fired if mm. it's deemed controversial. Do you think there's an issue here with professors being allowed to say their opinions? Well, th- I think that, uh, you know, and I can only speak personally yeah. myself this year, I, I have found it that there has been a reaction. You know, I've said a number of things. I was involved in the waterfront event earlier in the year, yeah. give a speech at uh, in Uri early in the year as well, and there's been a reaction to that. And, you know, I found that things that to me seem so self-evidently obvious yeah. <laughs> that they're unproblematic seem to invite quite a strong reaction here, and that, that, that worries me. I put it the way I sa- mentioned earlier, I have sat as a university academic in a law school in many, many seminars about the constitutional future of the UK, um, about the current constitutional setup here, uh, and equally, I think universities should be home to conversations around uh, the constitutional future of the island of Ireland, how we share that in the future. I think academics have a right to speak out in the public sphere as well. I think that's true of everyone. I think we're not all these sort of atomized individuals with no views about anything. I think we have views about the future. I have views about the future. People should be allowed to, 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 to say those things uh, out loud, particularly as you know many of them are so self-evidently obvious. Yeah. First of all, in relation to the unique conversation, the Good Friday Agreement, and much of the stuff I've engaged in around Brexit, you know, everybody else is basically saying as well. I suppose the worrying thing for me um, in the, the, the wider context is that, that, you know, I hope none of that is about trying to shut the conversation down or about shutting individuals down yep. or about creating a sort of fearful atmosphere where people then retreat back into, you know, not speaking out loud. One of the things that we've been trying to do and I've been trying to encourage in the last few weeks and months in various contexts is that cascading the conversation out. So don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to discuss what is in the Good Friday Agreement. Don't be afraid to discuss what the... Look, look, I'd be very... We're in a massive constitutional moment for this island right now. And we need to talk out loud. You know, these things will pass us by. And you can't expect people not to speak about these things and not speak about different potential futures. So I would encourage people to keep talking and don't let the fear mongers make you afraid of speaking out and having the conversations everywhere and anywhere. Have you ever had backlash from, say, other staff, students or politicians for speaking about the idea of the constitutional question? I think no, in a sense, you know, universities are great environments for, for having conversations and they're great appetite and curiosity for discussions. So I think one of the, the most refreshing things about this year, as although there's been some media commentary and there's been some other things as well, that within universities, universities now are starting, what I've seen in the last couple of years is universities organising their own discussions. Yeah. So, you know, UCD, TCD in the South, Queen's, other places as well, you know, universities in England beginning to say, well, this is an interesting conversation, let's discuss it. So I'd be sort of hardened by that. I think there's a sense in which universities can and need to be the sort of places where there is critical challenge, where critical voices can be heard and continue to be heard, and where people can have difficult conversations. Because, you know, right, we live in a society, and, and from whatever perspective you come, where there are many people out there who want to shut conversations down, uh, universities need to be places where critical conversations can happen. Universities, like other spaces, need to be places where there's a critical challenge function 
the vested interests in this yeah. society who would want us to stop talking about all sorts of things. So there's a sense in which I've been encouraged, really, in the last while by the fact that those conversations are taken off. And this, the way in which young people are leading the discussion about yeah. change in this society is also something notable, too. Have you seen the discussion grow at Queen's within the younger people, within the students? I've certainly seen that. I th again, there's an appetite for... Um, particularly in an academic context, where, where there's a question around exploring, for example, referendums on the island for teasing that out. So I think, yes, there's definitely an appetite for that. There's also an appetite, which is quite evident, I think, in the last few years in the university, in terms of young people wanting a different sort of society here. We've seen that in campaigns around equal marriage. We've seen that in campaigns around reproductive rights and women's rights. We've seen young people leading the charge, if you like, in terms of that change. University's been part of that, but people outside university have been part of that as well. And that's great to see, you know. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on today. That was a very interesting discussion and yeah. definitely thought-provoking. Yeah. So thank you for calling for coming on today. Thank you for everyone listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Carter Wickham Show here on Radio YNP. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to listen to more, make sure to check out our catalog here on Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud. If you want to check out more, go to RadioYNP.com, where you can get The Carter Wickham Show plus other content from creators from across the network. Also, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Radio YNP. And thank you for listening, and enjoy your day.